Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Oz Movie Geek podcast. I'm your host, Pado. Welcome to 2020. This is my first review or set of reviews for the 2020 year. And I'm quite excited for this year. I've got new equipment. I've got new movies to review. And yeah, it's exciting stuff ahead. So look forward to that. Before I get into anything, though, I did want to touch on the bushfire crisis at the moment in Australia. I've left links down below to donate to WISE and the Red Cross. Uh, in particular, two organizations I'm quite fond of just because of their hard work and their dedication to helping people. So if you would like to donate, feel free to. Um, like I said, there's links down below. Also check out my links to my Letterboxd, my Facebook account, and my Instagram. Um, stay up to date with the latest movie news, reviews, and clues, as I've coined that little term there. Um, and yeah, let's get stuck into the year of 2020. Um, I've been quite busy, like I said, so these reviews have taken a bit of time to get to you guys, but I have seen two of these movies twice, so you're getting a pretty in-depth analysis of both of those films, and all three films I thoroughly enjoyed, so I'm looking really forward to talking about them, plus this week's Blu-ray of, uh, of the week, or media home release of the week, home media release of the week, whatever you want to call it, um, is uh, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is a film that I have... Never seen before I had to review it for the podcast, so I was quite interested. I had seen the remake, um, but never the original, and I'm glad I saw the original and the remake because both of them are very interesting. I will touch on that at the end of the podcast. I've left a link down below so you can pick up that one from Shock Entertainment, who kindly enough supplied me with this Blu-ray uh, to review for you guys, so look forward to that as well. But I think it's time to get stuck into some reviews. So the first film I saw was Guy Ritchie's new film, The Gentleman, written and directed by Guy Ritchie and starring Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, Hugh Grant, Henry Goldman, Colin Farrell, Eddie Marsden and Jeremy Strong and follows a British drug lord who tries to sell off his highly profitable empire to a dynasty of uh, Oklahoma billionaires. Uh, this is a interesting film. Um, I'm a huge fan of Guy Ritchie. Now, I know a lot of people uh, love hate with him, I really like when he tackles the gangster genre. If you haven't seen Snatched, you definitely need to because it is such a fantastic film. I adore that movie. And I really love Rock and Roller as well, which is a very interesting gangster flick too. So when he does tackle this genre, it's very interesting and he does a really good job here. And it's nice to see him back in form. I really like the Sherlock Holmes films as well. They're quite good. And I really enjoy, um, I guess, the way that he constructs a film. I wasn't a big fan of Aladdin, but I don't think a lot of people were. So it was just interesting to see him go back to these roots of his. And I think he does a really good job. Um, the positives. I really like the acting. The cast is stellar. Hugh Grant is amazing as Fletcher and is someone who I'm not a huge fan of. So seeing him in this film was quite interesting. And I really liked seeing him in a different role. He said recently that he wasn't really keen on acting too more. The part really has to entice him. So he obviously liked this character of Fletcher. And I think he does a really good job. I find him quite funny in the role. He has some great moments. And I just really enjoy the way that he, um, I suppose, constructs himself on screen. He's just very, very natural. But he also does some really interesting things with the character. I love the stuff that he's doing with the voice. He almost sounds like he's got a lisp. And it just sounds like a bit of a speech impediment. So I really enjoyed that. Um, and yeah, I think he steals pretty much every scene that he's in. Uh, Colin Farrell is amazing, as he always is. He's always one of the strongest parts of any film that he's in. And here he is awesome as the coach. I really liked him. I thought he was funny. I thought he was really energetic as well. And yeah, I just like seeing Colin Farrell in these kinds of roles. He does seem to own the screen no matter what role he's in. When he plays the straight and serious type, he is very good at that too. But I really do like when he's a bit more energetic and charismatic because if you've listened to him in interviews, you know that he is quite like that in person. So it was really cool to see him in a role like this too. Uh, Charlie Hunnam is uh, also wonderful, becoming a regular with writer-director Guy Ritchie now. Um, he worked with him, of course, on, uh, what was it, King Arthur, um, the Huge box office flop, but it was a really enjoyable film for my liking anyway. I know a lot of people didn't like that film, but I found it quite enjoyable. Uh, Matthew McConaughey is more of the serious type in the film, but I really liked him. And Henry Goldman as well, going against type here. He's normally typecast as the lovable uh, love interest type. 
if you have seen him in uh, Last Christmas or Crazy Rich Asians, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. He's more of a gun-toting nut. And it was really interesting to see him in this film because I wasn't expecting it. So to see him come across the way that he does, it was really enjoyable. And I was really surprised actually seeing that in the film. I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know what to expect of him. I thought he might have played, you know, the suave type, but he was really interesting and I really liked him. Um, yeah, like I said, Colin Farrell was fantastic as well. I love the scene where they meet a character named Fahak and it's a back and forth between um, Colin Farrell and Charlie Hunnam and it's just fantastic to see them both on screen together and the back and forth there. It was really great. The plot itself, the story is full of twists and turns. Uh, it's told from the perspective of Hugh Grant's Fletcher who is telling Charlie Hunnam's Raymond what he knows and he's trying to bribe him essentially and blackmail him to get a bit of money from him but also other characters in the film. Um, it's very twisted in the way that it its plot unf unfolds but I really liked it. I, I just was not expecting it to be as funny as what it was. I was expecting it to be more of, I guess, a, a bit more of a classy film in a way and not that's nothing against um, writer-director Guy Ritchie but I just didn't expect it to... I suppose, unfold the way that it did. And it was really energetic and quite fun. And that, that surprised me a lot. Um, it's so fun to go along on the ride with these characters. They're devilishly funny together. The story does go one twist too far. I'll touch on that a bit later. But it, was, it wasn't enough for me to dislike the film. I thought that it did enough there that I was really entertained throughout. Uh, the quirky editing and filmmaking on display really elevate the material as well. I love the editing style, and if you're a fan of Guy Ritchie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The quick cuts, the energetic energy, and almost fourth wall breaking gags. Uh, it's Ritchie doing his thing, being British as he possibly can, as, as British as he possibly can. And I, I think that's a positive of his filmmaking, because if you've seen his other films, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He'll do things where he'll make a joke, but it's almost like he's talking directly to the audience. And there's a few times where that actually happens. Uh, we're looking through Fletcher's eyes, I suppose, in certain scenes, and there's writing on the screen to emphasize certain points. And that almost feels like it's directed at the audience, which I do think it is. And I really like that because it's not done enough. And outside of Deadpool, I guess we don't really see that a, a great deal, but it almost feels like he has harness that and does it very well in most of his films if you've seen um king arthur and the sherlock holmes films he does it as well when he breaks down fight sequences um sherlock holmes of course breaking down exactly what he's going to do to take out a villain and it's just really interesting i really like that the score is also great uh, it run reminded me a lot of the sherlock holmes score although it's not composed by hans zimmer uh, christopher benstead is the composer here and this is his first credit as a composer which is very positive. Um, the grit, the grit of the story as well was done very, very well. It was used sparingly, but I think when it was used, it was quite surprising. There were certain sequences that felt very out of place in the sense that they were tonally different to the rest of the film, but I think it made you care more about the characters, especially with Matthew McConaughey. He's more of the straight arrow in this film, but if you didn't have him, then I don't know if it would would work as well. Charlie Hunnam's the same too. He sort of totes the line of being over the top and serious, but he's also very funny in the film. And I like that balance because it counteracts, um, I, I suppose, Mickey Pearson, Matthew McConaughey's character, because he's very, very strong and he's meant to be, you know, the man. He He's the business leader behind this whole operation. So you've got to understand where he's coming from. So I really like that. And I love the way it was handled. The characters as well, these characters are well fleshed out. We don't know a great deal about them in regards to their past, um, except Mickey Pearson, who's given a lot of explanation as to who he is. But rather a lot regarding personality, which was really refreshing, something Richie is great at. We understand the tropes of these characters, who they are, what their end goal is. And I really like that because writing a character is so important and it's something that is often forgot about, especially in these kinds of films. You need to have strong characters and I think that he does a really good job here of developing these characters enough that we care about what's going on but also we understand where they're coming from. So I really did enjoy that and I think that it was really interesting and something that we don't see enough of. So Guy Ritchie, if you're listening, which is highly doubtful, please do more of this because I absolutely adore it and it's so entertaining to watch on screen. 
I briefly touched on the comedy as well. Uh, this is one of the funniest films I've seen in a very long time. There's great comedic gags without relying on cheap humor. Yes, some of the jokes are simple, but the cast execute them with such prestige and perfection that it felt like they were comedians, essentially. They were so good in this film, especially Hugh Grant. Like, honestly, most of the scenes he is in, you'll be laughing out loud. He is so great in the film, and Colin Farrell as well. I just love it, and they execute the jokes with perfection. They are so good. Uh, they're wonderful, and I found myself laughing out loud multiple times throughout, um, and this is both times I saw the film. On the second viewing, I didn't think I would laugh as much because I knew exactly when the gags are coming, and that's like a horror movie or a, a comedy film. You know exactly what's coming the second time around, but this time it actually did really work for me, and I, I found myself laughing just as much the second time around as I did the first, so that was really entertaining. As I briefly touched on, though, I do have one negative of the film, and that is the film does go one twist too far for my liking. I wish it had have ended five minutes before it did. The Russian subplot, whilst providing a few great gags and a great finishing gag as well uh, with Fletcher, um, with this script of the story that he's telling throughout the film, pretty much the film, The Gentleman, he's taking it to a film executive at Miramax, and it's a really funny gag. Again, a fourth wall breaking gag. Um, but the fact it didn't, it didn't worry me too much, but I just wish that it had have ended a bit earlier because I just don't think the Russian subplot really fit in with the rest of the film. It's still entertaining, but it was more, one of the more serious aspects of the film and I just don't think it really had a place. But nevertheless, I did love this film and I'm glad I saw it twice in the cinemas because we don't see enough of these kinds of films. Um, I know it hasn't been released yet in America. It gets released in the last weekend of January, but... Uh, a lot of people have seen it and I'm really happy I got the chance to see it. So if you do get the chance to see it, please go and see it on the big screen because it is thoroughly entertaining. My verdict. The Gentleman kicks off 2020 with a bang. Great direction from Guy Ritchie, a stellar cast and an all-round enjoyable time at the movies. I'm glad I got to see this one twice and I honestly can't wait to see it again. And I'm giving The Gentleman a 9 out of 10. Definitely go and see this one, guys, because not enough people are talking about it. Uh, it has got a really strong response on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment. I think when I looked, it had 76%, which is awesome. So hopefully it stays up around there. And yeah, I really hope that you guys enjoy it. If you do go and see it, let me know what you think. But time to get into 1917. 1917 was written and directed by Sam Mendes and stars George McKay, Dean Charles Chapman, Colin Firth, Benedict Cumberbatch, Richard Madden and Mark Strong and follows two young British soldiers during the First World War who are given an impossible mission, deliver a message deep in enemy territory that will stop 1,600 men and one of the soldiers' brothers from walking straight into a deadly trap. Now, this was a film that when the trailer first came out for, I didn't know what to expect. It looked like a typical war film and that's not a bad thing, but... The first trailer did not do this film any justice. The second trailer, however, was very good. Um, but this is a film that was on my radar for two reasons. One, Sam Mendes. Uh, I think he's a fantastic director. Yes, Spectre was a bit of a miss, but I absolutely adore what he did with Skyfall. It reinvigorated the character of James Bond after Quantum of Solace, which gave James Bond a bit of a bad taste again. Now, that film isn't terrible, but it is something that I have a pretty bad memory of in the cinemas. I just remember being incredibly bored. Yes, I was young, but I just remember I did not love that film. And on repeat viewing, of course, it has grown on me a little, especially with maturity as well. But yeah, it wasn't a great film. So when he came in to direct Skyfall, I was really interested to see what he could do. And I absolutely adore that film just for what he was able to do visually, but also creatively as well. So he's pairing again with cinematographer, the great Roger Deakins, was something I was excited to see. And this film did not let me down. This is one of the best films I have ever seen in the cinema. Not one of the best films I've ever seen, just in the cinema, just one of the best experiences. It was so fantastic to see this on the big screen. So if you get the chance, go and see it on the big screen. I had someone contact me during the week and told me that they saw it in IMAX. If you have the chance to see it in IMAX, definitely go and see it there too, because it is such a great looking film, especially on the big screen. It is so great. All right, let's get stuck into the positives. I have a lot to say. First, the cinematography. You all know this was filmed to be seemingly one take. It's the selling point of the film, but it is honestly shot to perfection. One of the most haunting and beautifully filmed movies I've ever seen. Like I said, on the big screen, probably the best. Roger Deakins is a master. Two shots stood out to me in particular. 
Lance Corporal Schofield arrives in the French town of Acoust. He is being chased by a German soldier and hiding when the flares go off in the dark. The score by composer Thomas Newman swells in this scene, along with the gorgeous cinematography and lighting, make this one of the best scenes I have ever seen on the big screen. It was so beautiful. They used natural lighting from what I could tell. So there was sequences when uh, the flares were going off um, and the bright lights, he would run and hide in the shadows. And then when it's dark, he would run because the German soldiers obviously couldn't see him. And it was so well done. And Thomas Newman's score here was honestly perfection. It was so beautiful, so haunting, but also so wonderfully executed. I love when everything in a film comes together. And that's one of the examples here. It just, everything came together. And it was so awesome to see that, especially seeing what a, a great composer could do with Roger Deakins and Sam Mendes here. It's just, it's an culmination of just everything. It is so fantastic and I really loved it. Uh, it was amazing. One of the best scenes I had seen on the big screen. Um, the other was a scene when Schofield arrives at the 2nd Battalion, the 4th Wave. He just collapses as a soldier sings. There is a gorgeous shot surrounding all the soldiers and it, it tracks around all the soldiers and comes back to Schofield leaning up against a tree. Um, he looks almost dead and it's harrowing and so beautiful. And before that, we get a great sequence when um, the cherry blossoms are falling in the water and his friend, spoiler alert, who dies during the film that he's um, being accompanied with uh, to get to um, uh, to this part of the enemy territory. Um, when he dies, he sees the uh, cherry blossoms and he dies in a field of cherry blossoms. So it's really beautiful and that's a great moment too. But Honestly, just the sequence after sequence just really, really hit me hard and I really loved the way it was filmed. And on repeat viewing, I was able to pay attention a little more to a few um, more things like that with the cherry blossoms, a bit more symbolism, um, and even just certain scenes. So there's a scene when Schofield is being shot at by a German soldier in the window just as he's arriving in a coast. And um, I didn't see where the German soldier was shooting at uh, before when I first watched it, I didn't know him because it's one tracking shot of Schofield going through uh, the, over this river up to this building. Um, I looked up in the corner and you can actually see the man, uh, the German soldier in the in the window shooting down at him. So that was really cool that I was able to see that. And the sound design in that sequence was fantastic. Just hearing the bullets ricochet off the bridge, it was really well done. And I really liked that. Um, the money shot you see in the trailer as well of Schofield running through the uh, top of the trenches is also amazing. Every sequence is just gorgeous, but that sequence in particular, um, out of all of them, just gave me goosebumps. It was such a heroic moment, but just the way it was executed as well. There's a video surfacing online that has both the original um, shot that we see in the trailer and then the making of the shot behind the scenes as well. And I just really loved the way that was executed. It was really beautiful and something I wasn't expecting. And I really liked the way that that came across on film. It just looked so beautiful and so gorgeous. So um, if you have the chance to see it, definitely do. But you know that shot I'm talking about. Um, and I will link down below, if I can find it, the video of the two shots um, next to each other so you can see the making of and the actual final shot of the film. It looks fantastic and it's such a cool process to see how that um, comes across. Hats off to George Mackay as well, as he is wonderful and carries the film for most of it. Uh, we are following him during the entirety of the film, so I really liked him. He's playing Ned Kelly in the upcoming um, True Story of the Kelly Gang, which I hope to review at the end of the month when it um, arrives on Australia Day. But he is honestly fantastic. He is so different uh, from a protagonist than we see. He is scared. He is not a coward, but he is someone who definitely doesn't want to be there, but he wants to deliver the message because he knows he has to. And I just like characters like that. We don't get a great deal in regards to who he is, but we get enough of him that we understand exactly what he wants and how he aims to achieve it. Uh, after the mine, um, the mine shaft collapses and the trench collapses that the Germans have um, evacuated from, at the, as they've left a trip wire and a rat trips the wire. And as they survive and get out of there, you see Schofield reach for a tin in his pocket. He opens it up. We, the audience, don't see what's in it, but he just grabs that, opens it up, puts it back in his chest and um, continues on. But at the very end of the film, uh, it ends how it begins with Schofield leaning up against a tree, just getting some shut-eye because he would be absolutely exhausted. And... Um, yeah, it was honestly fantastic and I really enjoyed that sequence 
because it pays off at the end when he reaches for the tin and we actually see what's in there. It's a photo of his family and it's just really gorgeous and I thought it was really touching and something I wasn't expecting and I thought that was my favourite aspect of the film was just the way that his character and his journey. I heard a few people complain about the character development but it was honestly enough for me and I really liked that and George Mackay was fantastic. We also have other cast members that you see in the trailer Colin Firth, Benedict Cumberbatch, Mark Strong, uh, Richard Madden, they all show up very briefly. Um, but I think the, my favorite out of the lot of them was Mark Strong. Uh, his character was really interesting and it was very brief, but I really enjoyed seeing him on screen. He's always typecast as the villain. And it wasn't until I said this aloud the other day that I actually saw how many villain roles that he's had. He was in Sherlock Holmes. He played the villain. He was in Kick-Ass. He was the villain. He was in Shazam. He was the villain. Uh, Kingsman's the only film that I can think of where he's actually played more of a heroic character out of those big screen performances. Of course, he's been in other projects, but I really enjoyed seeing Mark Strong on screen and I actually really want to see more of him. I would love to see him as a dad. That's something that just came across me when I was watching and I was like, he looks like he would make a really good dad character in a movie. Can we see him as a dad? I think that would be really interesting, but I thought he was fantastic and I really enjoyed seeing those supporting characters show up for such minute screen time because... If you have actors, character actors like Benedict Cumberbatch, Colin Firth, Mark Strong and Richard Madden on set, and you only use them for one scene, it shows how that portion of the movie did not matter. The story was about getting here and getting it done. It's a very plot-driven film rather than a character-driven film. And that's interesting because it's not done too often. I really enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, I, I thought that was fantastic. The story as well. This is a dark story. The end goal doesn't really feel like a victory but rather a failure of sorts. Cumberbatch line pretty much states, I'm paraphrasing here, but we've stopped the attack today for it to happen next week. Um, that was something that I was really, I guess, upset to see at the end because the end goal pretty much meaning nothing. But, but we know that from the title of the film. It's called 1917. There's still a lot of war to happen um, after this event. So I really enjoyed that aspect as well, I guess, because it's a small victory. It's a character's victory. It was something that was minute. And at the end of it, we see the devastation that the first wave faced uh, that he obviously wasn't able to save because they were going over as he arrived. And we just see, you know, people with missing limbs and, and horrific injuries. And I just thought that that was an interesting way to tell the story because normally the way that you would tell it would be you would have someone who get something done, but it's, you know, heroic as hell. Where here, it's heroic, but it's also very quiet and small. It's a victory that he's not even really thanked for at the end of the film. When he finally arrives to um, Benedict Cumberbatch's character, Benedict Cumberbatch tells him to fuck off. Like, it's very brief, but that's what happens. And it's just very sad to think that he's gone through hell and back, and then there's no real reward for it. He doesn't care about the medal. He just wants to save lives. So that doesn't really matter, but it's just the way that it happens. And there's barely any appreciation for what he's actually gone through and done, but it's just the desperation of war. So we understand exactly both sides of the story. You can understand Benedict Cumberbatch's character's frustration because he wants, you know, to win this war and they think that they're so close to winning, but it turns out they're not, and it's really sad, but it's handled so well that, yeah, you, you just really appreciate it. Um, like I said, too, the one-shot aspect of the film really does add to the suspense of the entire film. I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. It feels real and adds to the nature of the story. I was hooked from the opening frame. It was haunting, but also beautiful, and harrowing as well. I can see the cuts because, you know, that's just who I am, and I'm, I'm looking for them as well. Uh, anytime they enter into a dark room or anytime the camera pans to their feet or focuses on other characters, there are definite cuts in there. But it's done almost seamlessly that it grips you from start to finish. And if you weren't looking for the cuts like I was, you wouldn't notice them. It was honestly fantastic. There's a sequence when they go into a house, Mark Strong's taking uh, Schofield through the house and we cut to a group of soldiers peeing on the side of the house. That was a definite cut because our two characters who are the main characters in this particular sequence um, are leading through the house. So they're obviously not on screen for that period of time. So, And I think that's the only time in the whole film that we don't see Will Schofield. He's in the entire film, essentially. We are with him from start to finish. So 
I, I really did enjoy this film in that aspect. And I think Roger Deakins' cinematography is just fantastic. Um, I was hooked from the opening frame and it just looked so, so good. Um, but yeah, I, I think hats off to Mendes and Deakins and the crew for pulling off this. This is a, a huge achievement in cinema. And to be able to do what they've done and do it as well as they've done is masterful. It's fantastic. Uh, Alejandro in an R2 did it as well with Birdman, a uh, very similar type where it was doing one take, but you're not dealing with as many special effects and that sort of thing as what uh, Mendes and Deacons are dealing with with 1917. There are that many visual effects in there that would be uh, almost invisible to the naked eye. I couldn't tell when there were different visual effects and different sequences like that. There was a few scenes where they did wide shots of like dead animals and that sort of thing from the war. And I feel like they would have been composited and definite um, sequences with special effects, but you couldn't notice them. And I think that's a great feat in, in cinema. And I think they're the best kind of visual effects. And Roger Deakins is fantastic at it. If you've seen Blade Runner 2049, which I'm sure most of you have, because it's absolutely gorgeous, but there are so many visual effect shots in that film, but you can't notice them. They look like sets, they look real, and it looks fantastic. And 1917 has the same same thing going on where you have all these visual effect shots, but they're just so well done and so well hidden that you don't even notice them. And I thought that was really well done. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I think Deakins deserves the Oscar. I was going more towards the Irishman for best cinematography, but after watching this film, it definitely needs to go to Roger Deakins. The Oscar nominations came out this morning and he's nominated. So fingers crossed he gets a win here. Um, he also did The Goldfinch as well last year, which isn't a fantastic film, but it's beautifully shot and it shows his talents um, behind the camera. I briefly touched as well on Thomas Newman's score, but it is honestly fantastic and one of the best scores of uh, 2019. And I hope that either him or Randy Newman wins the Oscar because Marriage Story's score is also fantastic and they're my two favorites of the year. Um, but it's really well executed and used in the appropriate moments, which is something you can't normally say about some musical scores. Some of them aren't used appropriately at times and it can be really frustrating, but I really liked the way it was used here and I thought it was fantastic and it was wonderfully crafted and so well done that I didn't care really how it was misused, if that makes sense. I, I really enjoyed the way that it was used. I wasn't really pinpointing parts of the score that I didn't like. I've since listened to it when I was moving and I was traveling. I was listening to it in the car and I honestly love it. It's a really, really good score. And I think I enjoy Marriage Story a little more. Um, I like it more than The Irishman. But it, yeah, Thomas Newman, hats off to you, sir. You've done a fantastic job here and I cannot wait to um, see the movie again. Even though I've already seen it twice, I honestly want to see it again. Um, I do have one negative and that's the, the supporting cast are used well, but probably not enough. I understand this is a plot-driven uh, drama similar to Dunkirk. It's more about the situation than the characters, but at times it was hard to attach yourself to some of them. Schofield has the most development. We see him grasp at the tin, like I mentioned, with the um, photos of his family. Uh, we understand that he cares for his friend and he doesn't really care about the glory of war with his medal not being of significance to him. He gives away his medal to a Frenchman and trades it for a bottle of wine because he was thirsty. Um, but that's about it. It's it's enough for the story and it didn't worry me as much. Um, but I can see that some people would make a complaint about it. But like I said, I really liked that they chose the aspect of going for the plot-driven story rather than the character-driven story. We've seen the character-driven story in the war setting so many times. So it's really interesting to be able to see it through a different scope. We've seen, you know, Saving Private Ryan is a very character-driven piece. But here we are getting a different story, and I really like that because we don't get enough of that, especially in war films. Christopher Nolan definitely laid the groundwork because Dunkirk is the exact same, and Dunkirk is a fantastic film as well. But 1917 benefits from the fact that I suppose we're following one character during the entire story, and because it's done through the one-take aspect of the film, it's almost like we're following this character through you know, two hours of his life. It's longer than that because an incident happens with one of the German soldiers and he passes out. But it's just really well done. And I think that that aspect of the film is something that is so gorgeous and so well done that you really appreciate the effort and the time that goes into making a film like this. And we don't see enough of it. It is such an original way to tell a story and so beautiful and harrowing 
that, yeah, it really does take you by surprise. And I think it is fantastic in that aspect. My verdict for 1917. 1917 is beautifully crafted, well acted and gorgeously shot. Deacon's pairing with Mendes once again proves the two of them are among the best working today. I adore this film and think it is among one of the best I have seen on the big screen in a very, very long time, if not all time. A near-perfect piece of cinema, and I'm giving 1917 a 9.5 out of 10. Like I said, guys, you need to see this on the biggest screen you possibly can with the best audio, the best visual. Yeah, you just need to see this film on the big screen. It is so fantastic, and I honestly cannot uh, recommend it enough. So if you have seen it, let me know what you think. If you haven't seen it, what are you doing listening to this? Go and see it. It is honestly fantastic and such a great film. All right, the last new release film of uh, this review is Little Women. So let's get stuck into Little Women. Little Women was written for the screen and directed by Greta Gerwig and stars Cerise Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, Laura Dern, Timothy Chalamet, Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper and Bob Odenkirk, who shows up very briefly, um, and follows Joe Marsh, who reflects back and forth on her life, telling the beloved story of the March sisters, four young women each determined to live life on their own terms. Uh, this is a film that I wasn't actually going to see on the big screen, just because there are quite a few films out at the moment, but I did have a free ticket for my local cinema, so I thought, why the hell not? Let's go and watch this one. Um, and this was a film that I was looking forward to uh, watching, just for the sheer fact Greta Gerwig was directing. Um, if you haven't seen Lady Bird, you need to. It's one of the best directorial debuts I've ever seen, and one of my favourite films of the last 10 years and possibly all time. I absolutely adore that film, and I hope to do a review of it one day, but it is such a great film and I really, really love it. Um, but yeah, I was really looking forward to seeing how Greta Gerwig would tackle this material. She's probably the best female director working today. She's honestly fantastic. And um, I don't mean that in a sexist way. She's one of the best directors working today. But as far as female talent behind the camera, she's up there with the best. And yeah, this is another example of such a fan- fantastic film. Sorry about that. My voice just went all weird. Um, and yeah, it is such a great film, and I really, really love this one. So let's get stuck into the positives. First of all, the cast. This is one of the most impressive casts of recent years, but there were three standouts for my liking. Cerise Ronan continues to impress with another great performance, partnered with director Greta Gerwig. Um, this is her second nomination under Greta Gerwig for the Oscars as well, as she was nominated for Lady Bird, and she's been nominated again this morning for Little Women. Uh, Laura Dern adds another fantastic performance to her plethora of wonderful performances in recent years. Um, the one that kicked it off for me was actually The Fault in Our Stars. I thought that she was really good in that film um, and very underrated. Now, that is a cliched teenage drama, a bit of an angsty drama, but she is really good in that film and she adds a lot of depth to her performances. And I think she's always known as the Jurassic Park girl, but she honestly is a lot more than that. And every performance I've seen her in in recent years has been fantastic. Uh, last year alone, she had Little Women and she also had Marriage Story, which she was fantastic in both. And in my opinion, she could be nominated for both. She's that good. Um, but I think she's a little better here than what she was in Marriage Story. Different characters, hard to compare, but she was a little better. Uh, Timothy Chalamet was wonderful. He continues to impress with great performance after great performance. If you haven't seen Beautiful Boy, that's my favorite of his. I know Call Me By Your Name is really good too, but he's really, really good in um, Beautiful Boy because that's such a heartbreaking story and I really liked uh, his performance here. He continues to be really mature for his age. Now, he's older than me, so it sounds like he I'm saying he's younger, but he is older than me. I think he's 24. So he is really good at acting out of type and a bit more mature than what you would expect of him. But he's also really good at being as, I suppose, I I don't know. He has that childlike charm to him too. It's really hard to pinpoint exactly what I like about him. But I like the way that he, I suppose, uses both of those things to his advantage because he's able to use that boyish charm but also that mature aspect as well of his performance. And I think he toes the line really well between the two. The direction as well, Greta Gerwig in her sophomore effort delivers one of the best films in recent memory that I have seen. Uh, she's such a great, un- has a great understanding of how to construct fantastic characters. Lady Bird, she did that with ease. And here, even though it is her adaption of the classic um, Spruce material, 
she makes it her own. Uh, she gives each sister enough time so we understand them. Joe, we understand who she is, what she wants, and how she intends on getting it. Meg, played by Emma Watson, was probably the least developed character, but we get enough of her to understand her relationship with her sisters and what she wanted to do and how she felt during that time uh, with her partner, John. You know, she's more, I suppose, in love with the material goods and that sort of thing, but she comes to the understanding that her partner and her relationship with him and her family is more important, and that's her character growth. So we have enough of that that we understand where each character is coming from. Uh, Beth as well doesn't get a great deal of character development, but she doesn't apparently in the book as well. I'm talking in apparently because all I've read is the cliff notes for this book because I didn't have enough time to read it before the movie came out. Um, but I do understand exactly where each of the characters are coming from and exactly what they are after as well. And I really like the way that the time was spent on working on each of these characters because you understand where they are in their life at that point, but you understand them where they intend on going as well. I like the choice too that Greta Gerwig makes of not casting the characters at different ages or using makeup. Hairstyles change, so we definitely see that, but at the time, uh, Florence Pugh at the end of the film is about 20, so during the first part of the film, we have meant to believe she's 12 or 13, but her performance elevates that because visually we see her as a 20-year-old, but... Um, she comes across as a younger person. I really like that because it was something different and something that was very unique. And Florence Pugh in the film is fantastic, by the way. I know there's a bit of criticism there, uh, but she was nominated for an Oscar for it. So she's people are obviously agreeing that she's pretty good. Um, but yeah, I, I really did like the way that they did that. That was a really interesting choice. I didn't expect that, but I was very happy that it happened at the same time. Uh, I've left a link down below for the A24 podcast um, between... Uh, Greta Gerwig and um, the wonderful Barry Jenkins as well, where the two of them just talk about their experience of working with A24 to deliver two of the best films in recent memory, uh, Moonlight and Lady Bird. And they talk about their filmmaking styles, their inspirations, and just have a genuine conversation about how they got to where they are. So it's really interesting, especially if you've seen Lady Bird and if you've seen Moonlight as well, you'll get a lot more out of it. But they are so crafty behind the camera and they have such a passion and understanding of what they're trying to get out of their actors, out of their crew, out of the actual production itself. Uh, Greta Gerwig is a really good writer. Um, she does such a great job here of adapting this material because I, as I understand, it is quite difficult to adapt. We had a Hallmark adaptation last year and apparently it was terrible, but now we have this adaptation and from the trailer, I wasn't too keen. But just because Greta Gerwig was attached with such a talented cast, I was excited. So definitely have a listen to that uh, A24, the A24 podcast where they just describe what they're doing and their inspirations. And it's really, really interesting. That podcast in general is fantastic. So if you get a chance, definitely have a listen to some of the other episodes as well. Uh, the cinematography, uh, which was done by Yorick LaSalle, um, I gather that he's French um, just by the name. Um, but yeah, his cinematography here was really gorgeous. Um, we had these warm and vibrant colors during majority of the film, um, with distinguished, uh, lighting during certain sequences. So we could tell certain times apart, um, the seasonal changes in particular. So we have winter, spring, and summer, and you could notice the changes in all of them. Um, it was really gorgeous and so, so well done because that's something that you don't really look for. Um, you just know that oh, this is winter, so that's what winter looks like. But the craft in making that happen between the production design team and the lighting and the cinematography from uh, Yorick LaSalle um, just does such a fantastic job and it looks really gorgeous on, on the screen. So um, definitely keep an eye out for that because it's something that's really interesting and I really like the way that he does that. I really liked the development of the story too with uh, Chris Cooper's character as well. Uh, he's the grandfather of uh, Timothy Chalamet's character. And um, I do know their names. It's Laurie and, uh, or Teddy and uh, Lawrence. But yeah, it was just the way that they, um, uh, the way that it develops during the film. I just really liked it. It was really touching. And especially Beth's relationship with Lawrence as things go on. Chris Cooper's really sympathetic and real, really sincere during those sequences. There's a beautiful sequence where he invites Beth uh, to come and play on the piano because his daughter passed away when she was young. So um, Beth comes in and plays the piano and Chris Cooper comes downstairs, uh, Lawrence comes downstairs and we can see it's a wide shot 
um, and we have Beth in frame playing the piano and um, Lawrence comes and sits at the bottom of the stairs and he breaks down and cries because it's such an emotional thing for him to hear this music. But it's just the way it's executed is so beautiful and so well done. And that's one of many sequences that I adored in the film. Another I loved was um, when Joe is talking to uh, her mum and she's talking about what she wants in life and that she's going to go for Teddy because if she goes for Teddy, then, you know, she she's not lonely anymore because she just feels so lonely. And it was so heartbreaking. And Cerise Ronan, my God, she's fantastic. She's so good in that sequence. And the way that she talks about her feelings with her mum and Laura Dern's reaction to it as well, it's gorgeous, honestly beautiful. And that acting there was just, oh, it was on point. It was so good to watch and I absolutely adored it. Uh, the music as well by uh, Alexandra Desplat, um, which if you don't know, he is the composer behind The King's Speech, Argo, The Queen, uh, Philomena in recent years. He's such a great composer and I really, really enjoyed what he was able to do here with the music. Um, I thought it was really well done. Um, and yeah, considering he did quite a few movies and worked on quite a few movies last year, Little Woman was definitely his standout. It's such a whimsical score, but it also has the tones of being a bit more of a dampener and a bit sad during certain sequences, but I really did like the score and it, it stood out to me. Um, it wasn't something I was really listening to because with films like Little Women, the score isn't as prominent as other features like costume design, which again was absolutely gorgeous. Um, the performances and the direction are the real key points here, but I really did like the use of the score. It's used in appropriate moments where it's not overpowering. It doesn't swell too high, but yeah, it was just a really good score and I think that it mixed well with the themes of the story and the way it was executed. Um, the performances, like I mentioned, were absolutely fantastic. They were just all wonderful and um, yeah, it was just such a great film. I do have one negative though and that's the length. Now, I think a little time could have been trimmed off the film, but I understand it's how the story goes and how it plays out, but it does appear to be a little long in certain points. It does drag down, especially heading into that third act between the second and third act there. You could definitely feel that it was a little bit um, null and it was it was not losing my interest because I was engaged the whole time, but I definitely felt that length in that portion of the film. Now... I know that the film is an adaptation of the book, but one thing that I think would have been interesting would have been if it didn't flash back and maybe it told the story progressively from start to finish. I would have liked to have seen a cut of that um, part of the film. I don't think you've got enough at the end for it to actually work that way. It would have to be re-edited and re-shot, but um, I, I would have liked to have seen it edited that way because it would have been something a little different. I don't mind the flashbacks though because like I said, they are very easily distinguished because of the beautiful cinematography and the change in performances. You can see the maturity of the girls as they grow up. But I think I would have liked to have seen a little more time spent um, Yeah, just, just re-editing certain sequences so it just felt a bit different. Um, and it would have been a really interesting way to tell that part of the story. But... I think the way that it ends up is gorgeous. That was just something that crossed my mind was like, I wonder why they didn't tell it that way. There would be a reason why, but I really do love the way that it, um, it plays out. My verdict for Little Women. Little Women is one of the best films I have seen in quite some time. Greta Gerwig directs a fantastic drama and, like I said, one of the best I've seen in a long time. Fantastic performances, well-directed, and an all-round crowd pleaser. See this one if you get the chance on the big screen, and I'm giving this one a 9 out of 10. Three films, guys, that I just absolutely adore. I won't go and see Little Women again in the cinemas because it's nearly finished its cinematic run, which is a bit of a shame, but um, yeah, I honestly adored all three of these films, and I'm so happy I got the chance to see them all on the big screen because very rarely does that happen. But yeah, it was honestly fantastic, and I was very happy that I got to see all three of these films. All right, guys, so let's get stuck into the Blu-ray of the week. The Town That Dreaded Sundown was directed by Charles B. Pierce um, and follows two lovers who are savagely beaten and tortured on a backcountry road in Texarkana. Uh, local police are baffled. Three weeks later, two more people are slain in a similar setting and Deputy Norman Ramsey fears a pattern might be developing. Texas Ranger J.D. Morales, played by Ben Johnson, is brought to help. The two officers must find the Phantom Killer before they can kill again. Also starring Andrew Pintz and Dawn Wells, directed by, like I said, Charles B. Pierce, and based on one of America's most baffling murder cases, this horrifying suspense thriller is a shocking experience you'll never forget. Not everyone who comes to this lover's lane has the same thing on their mind. 
Uh, like I said, this was sent to me by Cinema Cult, and it's a film that I hadn't seen before. Now, I had seen the remake. Blumhouse did a remake in 2014, and that is a very, um, very strange film. It breaks down the fourth wall and is definitely aware of what it's doing. So this film exists in that film. And it's not really a remake as much as a reboot or a reimagining. Um, people are using that first film as an inspiration to uh, commit the same murders in the same way. So the police can see a pattern emerging. And it's very similar in its story, but it's just the way it's told is very different. Um, this is a film that was originally released by MGM's Orion Pictures, which recently got um, the revamp with Child's Play, the 2019 remake. Um, but it was really interesting to see that actually be developed. This was so interesting to watch again because I hadn't seen a film with such brutality, especially considering this came out in 1976. So it is quite old in regards to slasher flicks and it definitely came out before uh, quite a few of the more known slasher flicks did. But this plays out more like a murder mystery. You're trying to work out who did what and who's involved, and it's really interesting. So I think that's why this is actually a really good accompanying piece with the 2014 reboot, reimagining, remake, whatever you want to call it, um, just for that fact, because it's really interesting to see how everything plays out and how that vision has changed over the years. Charles B. Pierce uses his budget really well in this film. Um, the mask is really creepy. It's just a sack over a, a denim jacket, essentially, um, with a guy wearing black gloves and, and an, he uses an axe, he uses different instruments, um, literal instruments. He uses a trombone in a sequence in one of the most imaginative um, murder sequences I've ever seen in a slasher flick. It's really, really off-putting and weird, but it's kind of cool in that setting as well. So that was interesting. Um, but Early Smith, who wrote this film, did a really good job of understanding exactly what I suppose was really horrifying at the time it's still horrifying to this day don't get me wrong but if you have a look at the context of this film being released in the 70s you can understand that it would you know a bit of fear-mongering would have definitely occurred and I think that is really interesting and it's a really strange aspect of this film but I really enjoyed the way that um, it was utilized as well because you have this really creepy setting and this really creepy idea so how do you develop it further and I think that was done by having the phantom killer because we don't really know what his motives are we don't really know what's triggering this and because of the small town community of Texas County it's really interesting because it is such a unique setting for a horror flick and I think because of the success of Texas Chainsaw Massacre when Toby Hooper originally directed the 1974 classic we also had Black Christmas beforehand so you can see I suppose the use of themes from both of those films. I see the influence of Black Christmas in the sense that we have the Lover's Lane aspect and the teenage aspect, where Texas Chainsaw Massacre, whilst also having that, it's that different setting of the Texas setting, which Texas County, of course, is based in. So it's really interesting, and I really like the way that it actually plays out in the film. And I think that what Pierce was able to do well was use that budget to his advantage, where you can really feel the low budget aspect of the film but I think if it was any different it wouldn't be as scary so I really enjoyed that this is a really good blu-ray release as well um, we don't have any special features um, but the master is a really good trans uh, it's a really good transfer of the master onto this blu-ray uh, the 2k resolution is actually quite impressive and for a 1976 film um, re uh, redone uh, it does look really good um, I have added on the episode artwork the artwork of this blu-ray um, I'm holding it in front of me now. It's got a great slip cover. I love the slip cover sound um, and the smell of the slip cover too. Um, but it looks really good and I love the artwork. It is so creepy. We have um, the Phantom Killer, um, like an illustrated matte painting of him over the sunset of Texas County. And it's such a creepy image and I, I really like the imagery of the film and I really like the design of the Phantom Killer. It's literally either a pillow case or a potato sack over his head with eyes cut out so it's so simple but is really terrifying and it's a character that's not talked about enough in the conversation of scary uh, serial killers uh, in these slasher flicks because he is really terrifying and he is quite frightening to look at so um, I recommend you check out this one if you haven't already 
Um, and I'm going to give this one as a film a 7 out of 10, but as a Blu-ray transfer, it gets a 9 out of 10 for me. Bit of cinema grain, um, but like I said, it's a 1976 master that's been transferred onto Blu-ray. So, of course, we're going to get that cinema grain, but it looks really, really good. So, definitely pick this one up. I've left a link down below to Shock Entertainment's website. If you do sign up, you get 10% off. Um, so, I would recommend doing that before you purchase the film. But thanks again to Shock Entertainment Cinema Cult for sending me this copy. Um, such a great release and a great addition in the Cinema Cult uh, collection. But that brings this episode to a close, guys. So thank you very much for listening. Um, look forward to more content coming to you soon. I'll have reviews for Marriage Story and Primal up next week, and that will be the focus of next week's episode, as well as a brief review of the complete series of Channel Zero, which was sent to me by the wonderful people at Via Vision Entertainment. Um, it's such a great Blu-ray release. I kept seeing it over Christmas, and then I got it in the mail from them to review for you guys, and I thought that is a really cool Blu-ray release. So look forward to that as well. Um, and yeah, keep those mailbag questions coming in guys to ozmoviegeek at gmail.com. I have one this week, um, that I'll briefly talk about before we wrap things up. Um, and it was my thoughts on the Morbius trailer, um, that was sent in over Facebook. So yeah, what are my thoughts on the Morbius trailer? Um, it was actually really interesting. It was different. Um, Daniel Espinosa is directing it, of course, from Safe House and Life. Um, uh, he's a really good filmmaker, so I was really interested to see what he would do with this material because Morbius is such a interesting character. He's more of an anti-hero. For those that don't know, he's being played by Jared Leto um, and he's a vampire essentially. He suffers a rare blood disorder and then after encountering some supernatural things becomes a vampire. Um, and yeah, it's really interesting. I like the cast a lot. Um, we have Jared Harris, which is fresh off the wonderful Chernobyl. So that will be really interesting to see him go back to a film after that. Uh, we have Jared Leto, like I said, Tyrese Gibson showing up as well. And uh, Michael Keaton shows up as his Vulture character. So this is definitely a part of the MCU or the extended MCU Spider-Verse that they're developing. So yeah, that's really cool. I actually really liked that. That was an awesome tease. And I think that's getting people excited about this film. Um, but yeah, I really liked the way that it's heading and it looks different. It looks like it's more character focus which is really interesting and doesn't look like a bombastic action film it rather looks like it's a bit quieter and judging by Daniel Espinosa's uh, foray into other films I think um, I can safely say that's what it will be it'll be a bit quieter it'll have some great character moments and some really cool action set pieces but they'll be used sparingly so I'm really looking forward to that but that's my brief thoughts on the Morbius trailer but yeah like I said guys uh, keep those questions coming in I really do like them so that's ozmoviegeek at gmail.com and you can message me on facebook too depending on what's easier for you guys but yeah that's the first episode over and done with for 2020 i'm liking my new podcasting gear i'm able to do some things during the show so i can turn it up like that or i can turn it down it's really cool and i'm really liking it i can also add some cool sound effects like that. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. but yeah thanks guys for listening and look forward to more great content coming at you shortly Peace out.